Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 78th episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. I'm your host, SBJ, and with me today, I have Logan. Oh, hey. Hi. I didn't see you there. (laughs) Here we are. The wonder of radio. (laughs) Yeah, or podcast, you know. Eh. A to B. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of A to B, we got Sean here with us. Yes, that's right. I'm Sean, coming to you right now through the magic of podcasting. One half of two rooms in a boom. One half. Well, I don't know why I say that. Technically, you you have a game company. Yeah, I'm one of the rooms, <laughs> <laughs> but not the boom. We have a podcast. Some would say for you all today. We are going to start off with some Kickstarter issues that Sean and Alan have run into with World Championship Russian Roulette. We like to give you guys that kind of information because not every board gamer in the world it feels like every board gamer in the world has started a kickstarter for something but not (laughs) everyone has started a kickstarter so it's kind of it's kind of always interesting at least to me uh and no one has complained thus far thus our 77 episodes that it that it's been a complaint so i'm assuming you guys like to hear about what what happens behind the scenes whether or not you like the game or not uh, and then you guys really wanted to talk about risk and share your risk story, so we're gonna talk about oh, risk, yeah. I guess. Yeah, uh, it's a classic. Yeah, Total classic. I'm just gonna toss it right over you to you, Sean. Let me. What's what's the dirt? What's the dirt on the Kickstarter street? So this is the sort of games going on under the table part of our podcast. <laughs> you know, look at the, <laughs> the the dirty underside of the tabletop. Well, World Championship Restaurant was a really fun Kickstarter. It did really well on Kickstarter, and our backers have been great. And fulfillment, we've never really run into huge fulfilling problems. We've had manufacturing problems before, um, but usually what we do is uh, for American backers, we ship them their games through Amazon, and that's usually about as simple as uploading a spreadsheet to Amazon, and then Amazon ships it out in about a day or two. Now, that process can be kind of annoying because Amazon's always sort of changing their rules. Like, used to be I could just upload one spreadsheet with 3,000 backers on it. Um, but now they've changed it to where I have to upload. Each spreadsheet can, can't have more than 100 people on it. So, you know, when you have thousands of people, you have to break them up into these tiny spreadsheets. And then they all have to be formatted to Amazon specifications. And you always get is back. Is there a reason for that? I don't know. Part of it is because you get back a lot of errors, right? Um Normally in uploading, there's just like people's email addresses aren't formatted correctly or whatever. Maybe they were trying to mitigate that. Part of me thinks that they just don't really care about fulfillment as like a huge business model. So it just doesn't work as well. <laughs> like <laughs> they just don't spend as much time updating it as they do like obviously customer facing stuff. Um, I have no idea why. And I've spent hours and hours on the phone with them. In fact, for World Championship Rush Roulette, I've gotten the angriest I've ever gotten at an Amazon service rep where like I told them to stop talking and just give me to their manager because they were terrible at this. And oh. I'm normally not like that, but I laid into a guy mm. mostly cause he was going like, uh, mm, uh, and I was like, I can already tell you're not gonna be able to help me with this problem. Let's move it along. Get me, get me your manager. And he was like, uh, no. Um, and then he hung up on me. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> So it took me a while, but I eventually like sort of sorted out the problems. It, it was this weird thing where Amazon told me that they'd processed like a thousand orders, but they weren't showing up. And so I didn't know if I should re-upload the spreadsheet or not, because then we would double ship. And obviously that would be a huge problem for us. Luckily, that all worked out. 
So it's pretty normal, though. Um, there's always going to be some weird kinks with Amazon, but you, you get kind of used to calling them and working it out. For international fulfillment, we use a company called Ideaspatcher, which was recommended to us by uh, Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games way back in the day when we did Two Rooms and a Boom, and they did really well on Two Rooms and a Boom, so we use them again. And the benefit of using them is that they ship from uh, France, so they ship from within the EU. So for all our EU backers, they don't have to pay extra taxes to receive the games. Um, they get like tracking information. It's closer to them. We pay more because we have to pay the customs and the freight to get it there. But we save some money on shipping and so do our backers. So we really like using sort of international fulfillment partners, as you'd call it. This time I uploaded them a spreadsheet and I was like, all right, cool. Send it on over. And they were like, cool, will do. Uh, it should go out, you know, in a few days. Um, and then they sent over an invoice and the invoice was wrong to where like when I added up the price of all the items, it, it didn't come out to the total they gave me. So I emailed them back and was like, Hey, this invoice is wrong. And they were like, Oh, so sorry. Paying this invoice. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, what's this in USD? And they're like, well, you have to pay in euros. That's the way we can lower the price. And I was like, you're not lowering the price. The price is wrong. The, your addition is incorrect. I'm not asking for a <laughs> discount. I'm just saying there's a number here, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's not adding up correctly. Um, they're like, well, you got to pay in euros. So I had to go pay in euros, which is whatever. And, uh, then it got stuck in customs for a while, um, which was weird. And they said, next time, let us handle the customs. And so I yelled at our manufacturer and our manufacturer was like, we'll freight with somebody different next time. So then they said that they had started shipping the games. And so I told the backers they'd ship the games. Um, and our backers in France all got their games. And we were like, oh, that's cool. Things are moving. But we had backers in Canada and the UK saying, hey, you know, our tracking hasn't been updated. You know, if you've ever like checked for a package and the tracking says, the shipping carrier has received the information, right? Which basically means somebody told the shipper that a shipment was coming, but that's yeah. all that's happened. So we had a lot of people with that going on. And we were like, well, you know, you guys are a little bit farther away. Um, so that should be no big deal. Just give it a couple of days. So we gave it a couple of days and they're like, still same problem. So I was like, huh, that's going, that's weird. And after a week, it was the same problem. So we reached out to our people and they said, oh, we've transferred those shipments to a shipping partner in Belgium and they're shipping out the rest of the shipments. We just ship the ones in France, but our partners can ship the others. So I relayed that information and said, okay, it looks like it's like not crazy uncommon. You know, if we receive a bunch of inventory at one Amazon warehouse, the next thing Amazon does is ships it to a billion other warehouses. So I was like common with that as a practice that you might have different warehouses handling different things. So I relate, relayed that to the backers. A week goes by, nothing's happened. Backers are getting pretty angry at this point, um, but they've been really cool with us. You know, we keep daily comments. We're on top of it. And we say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, and so we start reaching out to our fulfillment company and say, hey, can we get a timeline? You know, we've already paid for this. We're like, we said we were shipping out like two weeks ago and it's been two weeks. And you told us you could ship everything out in three days. And I'm not hearing anything back from them. So I push and I push and I push. And the sad thing that I'm learning is, and I've heard this from other people, is you guys have heard the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. No, I can't say that I have, but I, really? I, def I definitely have heard that. I that's, follow. That's a, but it's a, it's a real phrase. I hear, I've heard it. Don't worry, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and all it really means is the people who complain get paid attention to. And it sucks because Al and I try to be really cordial in all of our communication, and we really want to empathize with our partners and not be... Like, we understand that these are complex organizations, international shipping or manufacturing. And there's a lot of moving pieces and people make mistakes. And we want to be 
good to work with. But as time goes on, we learn that the quicker you're an asshole, the quicker people fix your problems, right? (laughs) And the longer you delay being an asshole, the more they just kick the can down the road and they focus on some other other asshole, right? (laughs) So we start getting a little angry. We're like, hey, what's going on? It's been a week since, you know, we've heard anything and somebody jumps in. They say, okay, here's what's happened. We shipped your games to our Belgian partner. Our Belgian partner underwent a huge inventory, uh, like inventory count of their entire warehouses and accidentally lost your games. And then they found them a week later at their long-term storage warehouse. They had accidentally (laughs) stored your games in long-term storage as opposed to shipping them out in the middle of this whole kerfuffle. So it sounds like a huge fuck up, but one that obviously I guess happens. I don't know when they say they're going to ship them back to us early next week, or they're going to ship them back to their shipping warehouse early next week. And we're going to send them out. (laughs) So there were no more problems. Hopefully. Right. Like, no, no. (laughs) Another week went by (laughs) another week and a half went by me emailing saying, Hey, what, when can I tell my backers? When are we shipping? What's going on? How are you guys going to make this right? Because we're also, delaying the release of the game until our all our backers get their games. I know a lot of board game companies will release their games before backers get them because they need to make money. And I really empathize with that. Luckily, we're not in a situation yet where we have to do that, right? Where we have all these like overhead expenses. Yeah. But every week that, you know, we're not selling yeah, games. Feel- is- that feeling sucks too. Like I went to a PAX, PAX South, and I was there and I, I won't name the, the game or the company, but they were selling copies of their game early and was like i kick i kickstarted this why don't i have my copy yet and they were like well we used the kickstarter money to buy these copies we're going to sell these copies and then use that money to then fulfill for kickstarters that's awful i was like i get i get that like i totally get what you're doing business wise but like that sucks still that sucks a lot you should not yeah that's bad math like Uh we try every print run we produce has enough money built into it to print the next print run at a higher step up. So if we sell 5,000 games with the profit, we can go back to print for 10,000 and on and on and on. And we even build that into our Kickstarter. Like if we have 3,600 backers and we only print 5,000 with the remaining 1,400 units, we can go back and get 5,000, 10,000 or whatever units. Like we do that math and you know, we're not always going to be right, but it's a bad idea to, because what if those games don't sell? Right. You know what I mean? Like, now you have this inventory and you can't give it to your backers. Anyway. I mean, if, that, the, if the games don't sell, then you give that to your backers and you order more, I guess. But then certain backers know. are waiting for another shipment. But it's like, if you couldn't even afford that, whew, I have no idea. But those guys, uh, that yeah, that's living on borrowed time for sure. <laughs> I can understand this situation. Because we've been in this situation before. Which is that you're going to ship to your backers or you're shipping to your backers. You're in the process of shipping to your backers, but it's taking longer than you expected. And you have a convention coming up that you've already paid for. And if you don't sell the game at the show, you're just losing money. And a lot of backers say, well, like, oh, well, you shouldn't have done that. And you should do better, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a really hard decision to make when your back's up against the wall and you've got like a $6,000 bill paying for like booth, hotel, transportation, shipping to Gen Con. And you're just going to go sit there and hang out at a booth for four days. So it's not an ideal situation, but people who make the decision to sell games at Gen Con while they're in the process of fulfilling, right? Like if they're shipping it out or if they have Gen Con pickup, I can understand that. 
it's not ideal, but it happens. And I think, you know, you have to be kind of, you don't want to drive the company out of business because they were a little late on fulfilling your specific game, right? That being said, you know, we're losing money every day. You know, the game could be doing 5, 10, 20, 30 units a day. That's not nothing, right? So we're, you know, we're angry and we're saying, what's going on? What's going on? And we don't hear back from them for another week, week and a half, right? And our backers are getting angry again. And at this point, I've told the backers to copy me on their emails to hmm. Nift Idea Dispatcher so that we could see if they're getting communication right. Um, and they were all too happy to do that, right? So they're sending <laughs> emails and like, just want to let you know what kind of service we're getting here, Sean, um, which is great. Uh, but it's just funny, you know, because I'm getting like my inbox is just filling up with people saying, where's my package? Where's my package? And then not getting responses. And then I kind of jump in every now and then and say like, hey, why haven't you responded to this guy? So, the, you know, today's Tuesday, right? And uh, I still haven't heard back from them. So I start sending some angry emails and I got in touch with some people and they gave me some names of people further up the chain of command, you know, to talk to. Mm -hmm. And I start emailing those guys and saying, what the hell? What's going on? Like, is anyone listening? It's been 11 days since I've heard anything back. And finally, the CEO of the parent company got back and said, okay, I've called these guys. We're working on it. We're sorry. You know, we didn't want to say anything until we could uh, give you good news, blah, blah, blah. And that's one thing the, I'll say. This is still the Belgium company, right? This, this is the French company that works with the Belgian company, right? Okay. Um, but they say they should be shipping them by the end of this week, which I have to email back and confirm. Like, are you saying what I think you're saying? Are you saying you're shipping the games out? Are you saying they're shipping them back to the warehouse? Like, I need very, very specific information here because I'm going to relay it to my backers. Um, so that's the latest news of today. And I've explained it to our backers and they've been really uh, kind, hmm. but you know, like this is, it's tough, man. Like we, we have to sort of work our way through all of this. And if they don't ship us, ship our games, like they've got our games and we've already paid, you know? So what are we going to do? We have to have them ship it to another company, try to get our money back. It's just like a really annoying place to be in as a company. Um, and you hope they're doing their best, but you know, there's like six people copied on this email that I'm sending out and nobody's saying, Hey, we don't have an answer, but I'm getting your emails. We're working on it. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like sometimes that's all bummer. it takes is just to say like, we're getting this. We've messed up. One of my favorite guys, uh, Fabian at Panda, it was amazing at that. Always really good about like as soon as he got an email saying, I've gotten your email. This is what I'm doing about it. I don't have any information for you. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, and then if you send out another angry email, you know, the next day he would say, Hey, cool. I heard you. I'm working on it. You know, he would just let you know that you weren't going crazy. Yeah. Because after a long enough time of not hearing anything back, you're like, are these guys just like <laughs> in Jamaica, like with my money, what's going on here? That's, that's pretty crazy. What a, what a bad spot to be in, but yeah, but our backers have been really great. The game's good. The reviews have been really good. We're really confident in it. It's just a small hiccup and it sucks because, because we live in the U S and we have an easier, we have a better network here and, all these other things like our U.S. backers, which is usually the majority of our backers, get taken care of really well, um, and our international backers don't. And that's something we're working on. But it's hard to find solutions that like that are with people you trust that you know are going to run away with your money. And you know, international shipping is uh, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, things can just end up in a different warehouse, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> or or in you know in storage. <laughs> yeah, that's so strange to me. Like. <laughs> If I ordered something from Amazon and instead of getting here, it went into the public storage unit in Minnesota or something like, <laughs> like yeah, we meant to send it to you, but instead 
we threw it into the that volcano in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I've, ha- I've had packages delivered to like my neighbors on accident, but that's mm-hmm. one person delivering mail and misreading an address. Yeah, it's, and it's one over from you. Right. <laughs> like, they're, they're, yeah, you they can't were, go to the Minnesota U uh, yeah. store and considering everything that was involved in that, it's like you know the the materials were made in China and then they were packaged and they were shipped across the world to a warehouse in America, <laughs> and that warehouse shipped it to a, a local distributor in your like zip code, and then they gave it to a postman, and that postman drove on a route and gave it to the person who lives next door to you. Right. Like that's a phenomenal accomplishment in like the human race's timeline that we were able to get it down to just like you or the guy next to you. <laughs> but putting like two pallets of games in a warehouse that are like meant to sit on ice until the end of time. It's like just really rolling back the advances we've made in shipping and logistics over the last you know thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the last a thousand years, Risk is a thousand years old. Oh, yeah. Hey, it is. It's super old. I don't have any good fond memories of the original Risk. I was not that blessed as a child to receive that game. Really? Oh. It was it was mostly different versions of Monopoly my whole, oh. whole childhood growing up. But Oh, I was going to say you probably have more friends that you didn't lose to board gaming. But no, if you just got a bunch of copies of Monopoly, you're still probably at the same amount. Yeah, it's still screwed. <laughs> so I'll let you to dominate this part of the conversation. But uh, my only my only input is I played two, I don't even know what they're called, seasons, days in Risk Legacy. Like I've played like five rounds. What'd you okay. think? Uh, I liked it a lot. My My biggest fear of risk legacy was not completing the game because of the play group and that fear became a reality and <laughs> that's tough with legacy games right it's yeah. like let's hold it together you have to commit everybody has to commit to like 120 hours together really you know <laughs> yeah it's it's hard you would think you either get sick of the game or the board game group I play with, they're always wanting something new. They always want to see something new. Mm-hmm. Or they want to go back to things that they're just familiar with. Like, yeah, I want to play Machi Koro. I want to play The Resistance. I want to play Secret Hitler. Because we've played those all a million times. And we know the rules confidently. Where Risk Legacy, while it seemed like everyone was enjoying it before it fell apart, uh, it was just like, okay, every day... I'm sorry, I don't know what the... It's every season, every year... game Game... You're learning new rules. Yeah. I uh, I played, uh, I think we went through probably 90% of the thing, although we didn't finish it, my group. But I thought the game as a whole is a lot more solid than classic Risk. Like there is, it's it's a more simple task to win. You don't have to destroy the whole world. You just have to get those three victory point things. Eventually there's like a drafting element to starting the game, which I thought was amazing. So, you know. Somebody doesn't just get Australia with the luck of the draw. There's also, like, you can draw on the board dotted lines so that Australia isn't in a corner. It's, it's like, connected to Africa or whatever. I, I thought it did a, a lot of things to improve it. But I also really enjoyed Classic Risk. Like, I got the... Oh, yeah. uh, you, do you remember when they came out with those... Um, they look like books, but they open up to be a board game, like a classic board game? You're I talking was, about, like... You're talking about bookcase games? Yeah, I guess so. Is that just what they're called? I mean, they look like a hardcover book, but you you know they're a game box, right? Exactly. Yeah, and they have mm-hmm. like nice nice pieces. 
it's just a really good presentation. I was super excited to get that for Risk, and I I played it all the time. But we were always, I think that if you don't, if your group is one of those that's like never ever going to give up, never give up ever, then Risk is probably not the game for you because it will take two days. But if somebody's like, okay, well, looks like you kind of steamrolled everybody here. Let, let's let's call it a day and uh, <laughs> give it up. Then that's that. It's the difference between like a three-hour game and a weekend-long game. Oh yeah. Okay, I got, I do I do have a question. Uh-huh. So this is this is somebody who's never played the original Risk, but understands Whoa. how it's played. Okay. Well, when you I'll sit, be the judge of that. <laughs> when you when you say that the game can take two days is that an exaggeration like when no. pe- when people nope. say monopoly takes all day it's in reality they're just playing monopoly wrong because if you play monopoly right it only takes like 45 minutes yeah they, everybody's playing with free parking or whatever that takes forever but in risk but no. the thing that takes a long time is people are talking about their moves and alliances and and uh what they're going to do right it's not if you were just like, if you put a minute timer down and were like, take your turn, go, you know, like you could have a game of risk be over in 30 minutes, right? Like it would be no problem. Yeah. It's the game outside of the game and, and around the table. Which part, is a really important part of risk. Yeah. Part of why I wanted to talk about risk today. I know it sounds weird. Like it's an old game. Probably everybody who's um, listened to the podcast has heard of risk. If you haven't, you know, it's a map of the world with a bunch of territories and every player has armies and you move those armies from territory to territory until you take over the whole world. And for every territory you have, you gain a certain number of armies. I think it's your total territories divided by three. Mm-hmm. And then if you have like a continent, you get a continent bonus, right? It is the simplest sort of board war game that exists. And it's it's a classic, I think for good reason. When Al and I got to visit Hasbro headquarters in uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, uh, we got to hear a little bit of the story about the invention of Risk, which is cool. Because I don't know if you guys knew this, but it's it's invented by a French film director named Albert uh, Lamaris, um, who's a super famous film director. He directed the movie The Red Balloon, like his stuff's on the Criterion Collection. Wow. And the like story goes that he invented this uh, to play with his children, like at their lake house, right? Or their summer home with just literally a map of the world and then dices and some little chits or whatever to use as the army men or the pieces. Hmm. And, you know, there's like stuff with like the family and like not only who are the heirs to the, like the fortune of risk, but also the heirs of like the, the film rights and stuff like that. So that's like Hmm. a whole other thing, but I know it's weird to be talking about an old game on a board game show because Al and I have talked about this a lot. The board game industry has become very, uh, what do they call that? Front facing or like it's a very forward industry, meaning that all people want to talk about is the games that are out now. What's on Kickstarter now? What's cool now? Right. Yeah. And that goes all the way down from like our news to our reviews to our game design to where people want to make a legacy deck builder. Right. Or they want to <laughs> take whatever like mechanics are new. Like when um, code names came out, so many code named mechanic games were coming out of there around the same time. Same with Mysterium, right? Everybody was doing this like, oh, it's like Dixit scoring or whatever. <laughs> and, you, you know, that's there's nothing wrong with that. Like a new mechanic comes out and it affects every other mechanic that's ever been invented. And people start combining them, right? Um, like, ooh, what if 
we took this sort of Euro worker placement and we combined it with Dixit scoring or whatever, right? <laughs> but I really have been enjoying going back and looking at some of these older games that we consider maybe classics or, or that aren't very playable now and seeing what's their like evolutionary timeline. Like, I don't think you have a lot of Eric Lane games, right? Like um, Chaos in the Old World or whatever, or Blood Rage, if you don't have risk, right? If, if this popularized idea of moving pieces from territory to territory and gaining resources from having more territories wasn't so popularized. Mm-hmm. Risk was also part of this Milton Bradley uh, Game Master series, I think it was called, with games like Shogun, which became Samurai Swords, and then um, I think it's called Broadsides and... Or Broadswords and Broadsides, something like that. Broadsides... Broadsides and Boarding Parties. It's about pirates, and you actually have okay. two plastic ships on either side of the board, and you can board each other's ships. I mean, these are huge tactical games. Shogun is really cool because you're taking over Japan and you have samurai archers, samurai gunmen, samurai, a ninja. You build, like, territories. Axis and Allies was the other huge one in this series. But Risk is the one that survived because it was that sort of perfect balance between strategy and rules. I mean, it's a pretty rules-like game, wouldn't you say, Logan? Risk? I mean, it's the combat couldn't be simpler. It's just like three dice versus three dice and yeah. yeah you just move your pieces in i think it's actually pretty nuanced too like it sort of accurately uh reflects like a war of attrition sort of deal and there's a maximum amount of casualties you can you can incur and yeah i mean it's it's very simple but but elegant and and my favorite thing and i've wanted to pose this question to our listeners to the knaves is like Everybody has a good risk story. <laughs> Everybody has like a friend that they lost or a thing that they did or someone they backstabbed that defined that game for them. Yeah, yeah. Forever. Good, good is up for grabs as far as like an interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They have a, a tellable <laughs> sitter on the fire. Let me tell you about how I lost my first love because, <laughs> you know, I said I would protect Siam and instead I invaded <laughs> Australia. <laughs> what do you got, Logan? What's your good risk story? I mean, I just had fun playing it with the regular Risk. The uh, the Risk Legacy, I've got kind of a story of how... Hit me. Uh, this is kind of like... This is the reason why it deteriorated. Okay, so there's a mechanic in Risk Legacy where if you win the game, you personally get a nuke token. You can change one of your dice to a six whenever you roll. And that's significant. That's... It's like a big deal. It doesn't. It means it doesn't you can automatically mean, win one battle, any battle, some battles. It's really, it's really more like you you automatically win two oh, because wow. you know you're rolling three dice and you you line them up from highest to lowest. So let's say you rolled a five and two ones. Well, you you were going to lose those two ones, and you might have even lost the five if they rolled a six. But now you change one of the ones to a six, and you beat them on your six, and then now your second lowest uh. is only a five. So it's you can it's always change thing. one of your dice to a six. Oh no no no! You you spend your token. Oh okay, gotcha. Um, and and the first time that you win, you lose the like you need four victory tokens to win the game, and I think that you get a, a one automatically if you if you have not won the game yet. So it it's a balance. However, I was playing with uh, our group, and I happened to win the first three games, and. That meant that I was pretty much going to win the rest of the games because I had three nukes. It was ridiculous. Um, yeah, and I'm like, in hindsight, we should have altered the rules. Although you know, making your own homebrew rules 
that your mileage may vary, but free parking. Yeah, free parking, sure. Um, but this would be like a, a good example of free parking where I didn't force everybody to quit the game because they didn't feel like it was fair. Rightly so, because I had this unstoppable army every time. I think it it would have made more sense to just give the nuke to whatever army won the battle. And then if you are lucky enough to draft that army, then you get that nuke. But anyway, I just happened to win a whole bunch. And uh, one of the packages, you know how in Legacy games, I this is sort of spoilers for Risk Legacy. It's been a long enough time, right? Like, I could say that. Spoilers, I could say spoilers coming for, up. Turn spoil, off your podcast for 20 thing, seconds. Yeah, one thing for Risk Legacy here. Yeah. Okay. So um, one of the packages said, "Open this package when you when there are three nukes used in the same role." Well. Oh wow. Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, okay." Because all you in a legacy game, you, you know, the, you're incentivized to do things to open up packages, right? Right. It's it's almost more important than winning the game. I mean, and it definitely was for me. I was just like, well, I've got three. I can I can do this. So I just threw them away on one battle where, you know, like the uh, the role came up sort of not in my favor. So I just made them all sixes. And um, it turned out that that blew up Africa. Like I uh, it, it the card it, lets you blow up Africa or it blows the, up whatever the, continent you. The, the, yeah. One of the one of the continents is just compl- just. <laughs> it's all nuclear radiation. That's where like zombies pour out of that continent. And yeah, it's, Oh my gosh, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. And everybody's like, Oh cool. So <laughs> you destroyed the guy who was sitting on Africa. All his team <laughs> is now molten zombie lava things. <laughs> and, and you've gained a fourth nuke. Okay. We're out. See ya. <laughs> Spoiler over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have a couple. It's my risk story. I have a couple good risk stories. They're all bad things I did because those are the ones I remember. But we used to play in debate club or debate class in high school. Um, and debate was that like class that also had lunch built into it, so it was like two hours long. Mm. And we would play and play and play, and we played so much. And I had a rivalry with with my best friend Nick Grant, and uh, he was better than me. He was a better player than me, just at the risk management aspect, right? Um, <laughs> risk management, but he, he beat me in so many games and he beat so many people in so many other games that I convinced everybody else outside of class that on the next game, at one point we would call blitz and everyone would attack him <laughs> in the same <laughs> turn and just completely demolish him no matter what we were doing. <laughs> and after that, you know, the game would be up for grabs, which of course we did. And he was just like, what, uh, what's, what's going on? And we were like nodding our heads, like, boom, I attack you here. Boom. I attack you here. <laughs> Which is just that awful, awful feeling um, you can have. Oh. And it wasn't a great way to play the game by any means. Fast forward like a few years later and we start playing Risk online. Uh, we played using this website called Warfish, um, which was pretty cool because you could take your turn and it would have like a countdown time. You'd have like 24 hours to take your turn. You'd take your turn and then would email the next player that it was their turn. And then they'd have 24 hours. And they had all these different maps. You could play in Western Europe or you could play in like uh, the five boroughs in New York. So it was kind of cool. Right. Um, and it lets you keep track. It had things like fog of war to where like you couldn't see what was going on on the board only on the territories that surrounded your pieces, things like that. Um, so it really took risk up a notch, but man, the things our groups got up to in these games were devious. I'm talking <laughs> like reading other people's emails when they weren't around <laughs> to <gasps> see like what their turns were going to be like what? or who they had alliances with. 
me and a friend of mine set up a permanent long-term alliance um, where we would take turns winning games and always 100% supporting each other, but not oh, telling wow. anyone. Just like <laughs> always work, like a multi-game alliance where we would always work <laughs> together and trade off who would win. And it was like, you could fall <laughs> off in third place, you know, so that people didn't, oh, maybe he's just like pretty good. He's always in like first three places. Um, we wouldn't always duke it out to the end, but we would say like, okay, you'll win this one. And you know, like, <laughs> but then it turned out everybody else in our group was doing similar stuff. I mean, wow. it got devious and I really feel like people <laughs> out there have one. So if you have like an awesome risk story, um, please email us, uh, that cause I would love to hear just like the terrible, terrible things you guys have done. <laughs> That actually sounds like 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 the the social aspect of Risk, like you said, is a game on top of the game, and that sounds so fun. Like, ah, uh, oh yeah, sounds, yeah. I mean, even if there, even if it was like collusion, it's like that's what the real countries do, I guess. If you really extrapolate that, I mean, that's what intelligence sharing is. That's you know, like what yeah. false flag attacks are. If you believe in that kind of thing, like that's. And I think you can only bolt those things on to really simple structures. I'm not saying you can't yeah. do it in um, diplomacy or in, in harder games, but there was a lot of what I would call margin space in risk that allowed for you to have those conversations because at the end of the day, mechanically, it was going to be very simple to work out. And so you could spend mm -hmm. a lot more time on sort of the social aspect. Whereas if you have to worry about, like in Shogun, you can bid coins to have the ninja or you can spend coins to build a fortress or you have to worry about the makeup of your armies do i want to use archers and swordsmen because they're not as good against spearmen and gunmen you know that that level of complexity reduces the amount of time you can spend on your social thing or at the very least lengthens the time of the game to include both whereas i think risk hit that sweet spot and to me it's like a foundational game in terms of the history of board games, right? Even if you don't Absolutely. like it, even if you think we've done way better, definitely as a designer, I'm encouraging people to go back and look at root level games and see what did they do right? Because having the newest or best mechanic isn't always as good as having, as, as knowing when is enough mechanics, right? And that's a game yeah. that knows yeah. when it's had enough. Well, I mean, like you said, a new mechanic comes out. Well, that, they were the originators of these mechanics. Then there weren't that yeah. many to go around at the time. There was certainly not a huge board game scene where these were all being tested day in and day out. And I mean, it's still a pretty solid game. It just has, you know, things there's have grown. Just, like, yeah, there's other Small stuff world. I'd rather play. Yeah. Right. Small World is an example of like a better version of Risk, but it couldn't exist without Risk. Mm, I yeah. wouldn't say it's better. Small world has a, a lot of problems a too. Version. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. But there's tons of global control games that all funnel from Risk. Yeah. Risk has that quality that I like in a lot of games that I I find myself coming back to time and time again, which is you can no longer it it's distilled the game down to where you can no longer remove anything from it. Right? It's removed mm -hmm. every single thing to where it's this very diamond-like core. Where there's a lot of games where like it would do better with less mechanics, right? To where they've tacked on a lot of stuff, a lot of variants, a lot of this, a lot of that. And risk is distilled down to where you can't remove anything from that game without breaking the game anymore for the most part, right? Um, yeah. So it's just a very, very, very solid core. You can bolt a ton on. You can add legacy to it. You can add <laughs> different territory rules, but you can't remove anything else, right? 
And I like that about a game. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we should wrap up. I, I uh, reveal behind the curtain a little bit. Logan's Buffy story wasn't that good. No. <laughs> <laughs> Logan, give me a 30-second pitch about your Buffy game. Oh, oh, well, it's a lot like Arkham Horror, but with, with you know, all, every aspect of the Buffy show, except for there's not a lot of the characters, but the core group is there, the Scooby Gang's there, and you just fight against the big bad. It's got terminology that is very Buffy, Monster of the Week, the big bad, uh, townies, all that stuff, but essentially it is Arkham Horror or a game like that. Um, like a Mansions of Madness sort of deal where you are some people dealing with monsters. I can't speak too much more to it because when I played the game, I was very, very tired. And as tired as I was, everybody that I was trying to get play it was more tired. So they all sort of threw in the towel halfway through me explaining how to do this. <laughs> I, I think we've all been there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like Sean said earlier, if you have any risk stories or just... Uh, let me generalize that a little bit more. Maybe it's not risk. Maybe it's diplomacy or or some other conniving board gaming stories. Let us know. You can send us an email uh, at podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Spell with okay. And uh, thank you both for being on. I do know that we are doing a live show at Gen Con, but that... No Gen Con event registration is up yet. I think that goes live on May 24th. Don't quote me on that, but I believe it's sometime next month. <laughs> so we will be doing what we did last time, which was really fun. It was it was us sitting in front of a room talking about what we played at Gen Con. I had a good time, Sean. I don't know about you. I had a good time. What are we talking about? <laughs> Perfect. Um, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll let you guys know when that Gen Con uh, registration opens, and I'm sure Alan and Sean are hosting a bunch of terms and a boom and whatever you guys do. But we'll do, yeah, but we'll be doing the podcast. It's gonna be fun. It, it, it perhaps, should be great. Yeah, perhaps some Necroboomicon games, maybe some World Championship Russian Roulette. The whole arsenal. We won't be hosting Tourums and a Moom ourselves. Tourums and a Moom will be there. People will be playing it for will sure. It, it, We've got people running they it got for the us. They got the Necroboomicon or? Yeah, Necroboomicon will be at Gen Con. Okay. Yeah. Here I'm just wondering how that will like work out with large crowds of newbies. That seems crazy. <laughs> it's a lot of short games is how it works <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll be back next week. But if you want to follow us on Twitter, Logan is at Logan Jenkins. Uh, Sean is at Sean McCoy. And I am at Dragging A Lake. Otherwise, you can follow Tuesday Night Games and the podcast on Twitter at PlayTKG. Otherwise, I believe this episode is. episode's finished. <coughs> <laughs> that was a good finish. Way to go. Yeah.